Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. This ain't over. It's a big story. This week, RCMP Superintendent Darren Campbell's notes following the Nova Scotia murders reveal that RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky criticized Campbell and other RCMP personnel for not informing the public what kinds of rifles uh, Maskiller Wartman used, complaining, according to the notes, that she promised Prime Minister Trudeau and then Public Safety Minister Bill Blair that information, that particular information, would be released in time. With the government's move to declare any illegal rifles, which are styled after military, military assault rifles, illegal, uh, Trudeau and Blair deny any pressure was put on Lucky, while Superintendent Campbell's notes, four important pages of which were delayed for several months in being turned over to the inquiry, speak of great pressure from the PMO and the minister and others. More will come out on this, I'm sure. We have an opportunity now, though, to speak with Tim Mills. He was the RCMP officer in charge of the Nova Scotia RCMP ERT tactical unit on the night of the mass shootings in April of 2020 during which 22 people died. Mr. Mills resigned from the RCMP six months after responding that um, to the shootings and after 29 years as a Mountie. And Mr. Mills told the public inquiry investigating, quote, I didn't expect upper management to fight and abuse us, to treat us the way they treated us after I gave the best we could, end quote. Mills said the abuse by RCMP senior officers was worse than the war zone he and his team encountered during the April 18, 2020 massacre. Mr. Mills and his ERT unit also attended the Moncton, New Brunswick mass shootings. Tim Mills joins us. Tim, thank you very much. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to you. Thanks for coming on. Hi, Roy. Thanks a lot. Can you tell us about the RCMP tactical team you led and what your engagements might mostly have consisted of? Yeah, the emergency response team, or just, it's basically a SWAT team, and there's there's different acronyms or names all across North America for teams like this. And what these hurt teams or SWAT teams do is armed and barricaded persons, hostages, high risk search warrants, VIP escorts, uh, bush tracking like a rural uh, uh, finding someone in the woods, armed ship boarding here because we're on the coast, and uh, aircraft assaults in case any hijacked aircrafts uh, uh, landed in Halifax. Okay, so here you are. It's April the 18th, 2020, nighttime. And that would, I imagine, cause additional issues and challenges for an ERT team dealing with the time of day. How prepared were you? And I mean this in the sense of how much material did you have of what you needed to do your job? How prepared were you and your team to deal with what happened on that night? One gunman moving from community to community, shooting and killing people without a readily identifiable motive. Yeah, an uncontained armed person is one of the worst calls you can get. And You know, there's been numerous manhunts all over North America that have gone on for days or weeks and FBI or whatever, unable to catch them. So it is your worst case scenario, um, him having a vehicle, especially a marked unit. You know, just made it that much tougher. So when we arrived on scene, no one knew where he was. You know, you you go with what you know, last, you know, known point where he was or last uh, sighting. And so we believed, you know, he probably still was there or uh, 
in the area and you just start prioritizing what you have to do for equipment like being part of uh, the Moncton experience gave us some experience for something like this uh, you know our equipment we were fairly well equipped but you get into you know lack of manpower lack of helicopters and lack of a common operating picture which is a mapping um, system that goes on your phone able to track where your members are and, and it gives you a good idea where everyone is and, and the area you're working with. Then, then three major things were, you know, were lacking. Okay, so it was almost a, a chase situation for you, chasing what was happening in one place, and workman was, was moving from place to place and killing in those places. You, I find this um, extremely uh, challenging. I mean, I can't imagine how you dealt with it. You personally found... Your fellow officer, Constable Heidi Stevenson, shot and killed in her cruiser. You, you've been quoted as saying the series of events that night was much worse than Moncton's mass shooting. What can you share about the time between your discovery of Constable Stevenson and the shooting of Wardman, which happened not long afterward? Well, that whole evening, uh, just a carnage and, and like the war zone type fires, explosions, you know, uh, you know, casualties. It's just, it was surreal, but, you know, you just stay focused, you know, you let your training kick in and then, you know, your main goal is to track him down and stop him, whatever means necessary. Okay. Um, may I ask you how, how many, uh, how many officers were on that, uh, tactical team that night? There were 13 of us, um, after Mayor Thorpe uh, tragedy and after the Moncton, Moncton tragedy, you know, it's been studied. And, you know, they come to the conclusion every province should have an 18-man full-time ERT team. So we should have been 18. Uh, this had, you know, been spoken of for years. And we were only at 13, and only five of us at that point were full-time, and eight of our guys were part-time. Okay. It, it could, have, could have taken a lot longer to find Wardman than it did after you had discovered Constable Stevenson. It was just circumstances which made it possible for your officers to find him. Um, what's your reaction, Tim, to this week's news stories about Superintendent Darren Campbell's notes stating that Commissioner Lucky wanted him to make public to media the types of firearms Wardman used because the Commissioner had promised Public Safety Minister Bill Blair that she would do so allowing the Liberals to use this information in order to underscore their assault-style rifle ban. To be honest, it doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, I believe the vast majority of Canadians understand how corrupt Trudeau is, and, uh, you know, Brenda was appointed by him, and, and I think what's come out this week just confirms that the reason he hasn't been investigated or charged with any of this corruption or scandals, and I could take up, you know, minutes describing how many scandals are out there. He's never been investigated, and it's because Brenda Lucky is his puppet. Wow. Superintendent Campbell wrote about great pressure from Mr. Trudeau, from Mr. Blair, and, and as did others um, in their notes, which have been brought forward, um, to provide the information on Wartman's guns. Does Superintendent Campbell's assertion I think I know what the answer is now. Does it sound about uh, sound about uh, right to you? Because you spoke at the public inqu inquiry 
into the mass shooting of the about the abuse you faced from the RCMP, which you said was worse than the war zone you encountered during the 2020 massacre. Yeah, when I say it was worse, I mean I was affected worse by fighting upper management. But to get into, you know, you can't label any organization as everyone being bad or any corporation, but Superintendent Campbell is one of the ones that supported us. He's a stand-up person. He's an intelligent person. He uh, He's the one that righted the ship after the disaster of a press release uh, the CEO and the crops officer did. Um he helped as best he could with us. I have a lot of time for him. I respect him. I believe him 100%. He's a great investigator. Um, he's. I would respect him way more than I would respect Brenda. It's interesting. Uh, former Commissioner Bob Paulson quoted in the Globe and Mail saying very similar things about uh, Superintendent Campbell. Tim, you spoke about being proud of your tactical team and how the team responded to the carnage you discovered, given the tools that you had at your disposal. You also told us a few minutes ago about what your team needed and didn't have, including a full complement of officers and the ability to map and track events on the ground. Can you talk to us a bit about, about this team you're proud of? Because there have been criticisms about, about how the RCMP performed that night. Yeah, as I said, 13 uh, guys there, uh, really dedicated. Uh, you know, we wanted to catch that guy that night as quick as we could. Uh, you know, with what we had, um, no common operating picture that was taken away from us. That was that was a big handicap to us. Um, only being 13 and not 18, so we're down five bodies. Uh, no helicopters, that was a big one. And that was identified after Moncton. Uh, an RCMP or police helicopter really would have assisted us as well and made things uh, run a bit smoother that night. So with what we had and uh, the situation we were dealing with, extremely proud of the team, what we got done, and with what we had, we, we gave it our best and, and, you know, basically fought a mini-war for, for, for everyone here. What can you... Share with us, and I mentioned the word abuse earlier. You used that. What can you share about the abuse you faced from our MP superiors? And let me just add this. Where do you believe this behavior originated? Who do you think may have greenlit you being treated as you were? I truly believe it's uh, civilian inspector Kelly Sullivan. Everything points to that. I've done my investigation. Um... we tried to have this investigated several times and it kept getting swept under the rug. I put a formal request into her boss, uh, Superintendent Rob Doyle, to have this investigated. Nothing was done. So I fought for a year to, for someone to, to listen and basically hear, and I, this was on behalf of the team, not just me. Um, finally, after a year, some independent complaints reviewer out of Ottawa, which is sort of attached to the RCMP. Uh, there's four counts against uh, Kelly, five counts against uh, Rob Doyle there. But it's been a year. They haven't in, even assigned an investigator yet, so I doubt that's going anywhere. But when I said earlier, like, <clears throat> dealing with Portapec and the carnage and what we've seen and what we went through and, you know, all the backlash in the media and the news, that, that's easy to deal with, I mean, because we know what we did. 
But when you have to fight your own em- employers and starts off with lack of support, and then when you start trying to bring this to their attention, then they target you and they fight against you. That's when I start losing sleep with, you know, the fight, the internal fight and just the lack, lack of support and the, the abuse that, you know, after six months, I was just like, you know, enough's enough. I can't work for this organization anymore. Left a job I loved doing that I felt I was good at. So, yeah, it's definitely a bitter feeling, that's for sure. Yeah, you, you tried to get some decompression time off for your team members, and they said no. It wasn't even time off, Roy. It, it was the part-time guys I mentioned. They were supposed to go back to work, frontline policing, uh, just, you know, dealing with frivolous stuff, uh, you know, COVID tickets, stuff like that, uh, speeders or whatever, after they just been through this carnage and, you know, couple of them approached me and just asked, you know, listen, we've been through this. It's only been a week. Is there any chance we can get more time just, you know, to decompress? And I was like, yeah, amazing idea. I've worked frontline policing for over 20 years. Put the request in uh, for two weeks for them just to come in and work full time with us because we had numerous tasks that we had to get done for the aftermath of this. And, uh, Everything looked like it was going good for about 24 hours, and then we got the pushback big time, and it turned into a big fight. And, uh, yeah, it just it totally disgusted me. And, and nobody from the senior ranks checked personally with you or the team? We were in the same building headquarters in Nova Scotia here. It's only four floors. It's not a big building. The CO, Lee Bergerman, and the crops officer, Chris Leather, they would have to drive by our locker every day to go to their parking spot inside. They never once stopped in to check on us or thank us or just anything. Um, no emails come to us. There was one officer, and he's not even attached to ERT, a federal policing officer. He come down a week later, just come in to see us, and he was shocked that no one had seen us within a week or two, and it blew him away. And, you know, he... He was ashamed of basically uh, the upper ranks for not even acknowledging us. So after 29 years, including engaging in ways to defend your communities, most people couldn't imagine. You retired. You walked away. Couldn't take it anymore. Ultimately, do you feel like senior RCMP officers and officials cared for their own images more than they cared about the well-being of your tactical ERT unit? Yes, 100%. And I mean, the majority of members realize that while they're working and put up with it. And um, it's just when, under these circumstances, with all the the stress and what we went through and fighting for what's right and just the pushback, it, uh, it really <laughs> cemented they're in it for themselves. Uh, you know, the majority of upper managers, they're there for the rank, the power, the pension, whatever they're not in it for the membership anymore so it became very evident and i just couldn't take it anymore i was fortunate enough to have uh, the service to retire <laughs> i'm sure there were a bunch of guys on the team and some of them had said it they just didn't have the service to do what i was doing so you know my heart goes out to them that's for sure yeah and we have about 20 seconds you do believe superintendent campbell yes 
not 100%, I believe them. If it's written in his notes, and I can say during that meeting there would be other people there that would be able to uh, confirm what he said, and I'm sure if it's investigated, it's going to show he's telling the truth 100%. Pierre Polyev, who, as you of course know, is not only a member of parliament for uh, Ottawa Carlton, but also contesting the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada, and in fact, as Mr. Polyev says, the Prime Minister's job. So, Mr. Polyev, they spend less, pay less for gasoline in Ukraine than we do in Canada. Why does that not surprise me? Look, uh, there are many reasons why gas prices are high. Some of them are international, but that doesn't explain the whole story. After all, the United States has much lower gas prices than we do, uh, even though we produce far more uh, energy per capita than they, uh, and uh, we have similar uh, geographic uh, location to them. So why? And the answer is, of course, we have massive taxes, uh, the carbon tax, the gas tax. And second, uh, the prime minister has used his gatekeepers to block energy production in Canada that would increase the supply and our export of energy that would have boosted our dollar and our purchasing power for energy. So that is why we are paying more at the pumps. I've called for the government to suspend the gas tax for the summer and axe the carbon tax altogether, two steps that would make our gas significantly more affordable here in Canada. Yeah, just the idea of uh, gasoline costing less in Ukraine than Canada just is, is mind-numbing. Let me get to the issue that the world is talking about, in this country, of course, and I know you have considered it over the last 24 hours and before that, your position on abortion, and uh, what position would appear probably a federal government adopt concerning passing of abortion rights legislation, given what's just happened in the United States and what's being said in this country today? We would not pass legislation restricting abortion under a polyeth government. Would you pass legislation that would, in fact, enshrine the right to an abortion? It already exists. Uh, the right uh, to an abortion exists. Uh, under the current uh, status quo, and uh, the, that would continue. That right would continue to exist when I'm prime minister. Not in legislation right now, though, is it? I think it, I don't know if there's uh, anything that says one way or the other, but it is not restricted. There are no legal restrictions uh, at a federal level on abortion, and the provinces uh, and territories are responsible for delivering those services. And nothing would change from the way it is right now uh, right. when I'm prime minister. This is an ongoing and developing issue. I'll ask you one more question. It has to do with the Conservative Party. Then we'll get on to other things. Do you believe the abortion rights issue will significantly factor into the Conservative Party leadership race? There are deep divisions on the issue within the party, among Canadians, but within the party. I believe, and social conservatives have expectations of their leader, and so do party members who are not. Is it a divisive issue within the party? Look, I think it's uh, people have strongly held views on it in all po political parties and in all countries. All I can say is that my position is clear. A polyev government will not introduce or pass any abortion law or any law or rule restricting abortion. So you just heard me say that I'm going to be speaking with the former RCMP Nova Scotia ERT tactical unit commander. On the night of April 18th, 2020, he was in charge in what he called a war zone, and uh, the treatment that he received from his superiors 
um, drove Tim Mills, he'll tell us that, into deciding to retire after 29 years. His unit was also in Moncton for the mass shooting there. So let me get your thoughts on this. Uh, the federal government and the RCMP commissioner, you've heard the uh, what's been said in Parliament and across the country. Interference with the RCMP from uh, Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Blair, they both deny it, with the RCMP investigation of the mass murders in order to promote the Trudeau government's anti-firearms agenda. What do you have to say about that? Well, we shouldn't be surprised Trudeau has a past of interfering with the criminal justice system once he did did it to try and protect liberal linked Essence Lavalin from criminal prosecution after it, uh, the company stole hundreds of millions of dollars from uh, some of the poorest people in Africa. Uh, and now uh, we have testimony at the mass shooting hearings uh, from senior RCMP personnel saying that uh, liberal cabinet ministers pressured the Mounties to uh, interfere with the and even compromise a criminal investigation into those murders in order to try and put out uh, information they thought would be politically advantageous to the liberal uh, political agenda. And I think that is outrageous. Uh, the focus should be on finding out how this shooting occurred, how, to making sure that it never happens again, uh, guaranteeing that the that, that all of the wrongdoing is prosecuted, and of course. Uh, consoling and supporting the families of the of those lost, but instead liberals were uh, licking their chops, looking for a political win, uh, and uh, interfering with a, a national police force to get one. That is completely unacceptable. Yeah, we're also going to be speaking with Scott McLeod. His brother Sean was one of the 22 people murdered by Wartman, as was his brother's um, uh, partner, Alana Jenkins. The, the other day you talked about a plan that you... Uh, you plan to put in place, and it's the pay-as-you-go law. Explain that to us, please. Yes, yeah, so the, as you know, the cost of living is uh, is rising because of the cost of government. Uh, the um, half trillion dollars of inflationary deficits are bidding up the price of goods, and uh, inflationary taxes are bidding up the cost for businesses to make those goods. Inflation is now at a 7, uh, sorry, it's at 7.7% which is a nearly 40-year high. People can't afford gas, groceries, or housing, 35-year-olds living in their parents' basements. The cost of government driving up the cost of living. So how do we make government affordable? Well, uh, we have to limit the growth in spending. The Trudeau uh, has increased government spending from $8,000 for every man, woman, and child in Canada to $11,000. Uh, that's $3,000 in increase after inflation. Or twelve grand uh, increase for a family of four. I don't know anybody who feels like they're getting twelve thousand dollars more value for their family of four from the federal government than they were when Trudeau took office. And all those costs are being passed on in inflation and higher taxes. Um, and by the way, two hundred billion dollars of the new spending in the last two years had nothing to do with COVID, according to Trudeau's own parliamentary budget officer. So the pay-as-you-go law would require that the government find a dollar of savings for every new dollar of announced spending. Uh, so uh, if the government politician jumps out, says, I want a $10 million uh, program, he'd have to go into his budget and find $10 million of savings rather than just passing them on to the public. And that's the same as uh, the Jones family. They, they've got $2,000 for recreation. They can spend it on a $2,000 porch or a $2,000 vacation, but they can't 
do go above that budget. So they might actually find a way to get a deal on the porch and the vacation and do both of them within the budget. But that's how families run their finances. Governments should do the same. This law would put a hard cap and and, and end the the, uh, insatiable spending appetites of politicians, force politicians to pinch their pennies, because God knows our families have been pinching their pennies for long enough. That sounds interesting. We'll, uh, we're actually next hour going to be speaking a great deal about the economic realities and inflation. 72% of Canadian families are concerned about being able to feed their kids. One more question well, Roger, because we agreed on, one last sorry? Point on that. If I could, if I could just yeah, point please. one last point on that. In the 1990s, the Americans had a very similar problem, rising inflation and high deficits. So Bill Clinton actually respected the pay-as-you-go law there. And he successfully balanced the budget and paid off $400 billion of American debt. That brought inflation down and sent economic growth soaring because it freed up a lot of resources for workers and businesses to to build the real economy. Uh, And then then the Congress got greedy again, and they repealed the law, and America went right back into deficit. In fact, the only time since I've been alive that America had a balanced budget was when they had a pay-as-you-go law. It proves if you bring in legal restrictions on politicians' spending, they will find a way to make dollars go further. They will balance the budget and make life more affordable. That's my purpose. Clinton did quite a reasonable job with the economy. So we agreed on 10 minutes. I've taken 12 or 13, and I appreciate you sticking around. One more question. The issue of the ban of single-use plastic, the announcement made by the Trudeau government, is Canada's direction chosen by the government meaningful in the big picture or... I think I know what you're going to say, but I'll ask you, simply more virtue signaling. Well, I think it's more symbolism than anything else. Um, Look, we have the opportunity to be the world leaders in plastics recycling because our petrochemical industry in Western Canada is so sophisticated. We have the best petrochemical engineers on planet Earth. They have methods that they can basically recycle plastic molecules over and over and over again for centuries. To come, and that's where we should we should unleash that sector, uh, rather than trying to ban products that we use in our everyday lives that end in and especially when the liberals have not given us any example of what we're going to replace them with. So what I see us doing, what I see them doing, is effectively driving up the cost of of, of the, our goods and services without any meaningful environmental benefit. When what they could be doing is incentivizing uh, the most uh, advanced recycling plastics recycling sector on planet earth uh, which we could lead and which would be good for our both our consumers and our workers so we have the interest uh, or the inflation rate at 7.7 percent the highest in 40 years who was the prime minister 40 years ago oh yeah uh, gasoline is over two dollars per liter fearful homeowners speak of selling if interest rates rise uh, Scotiabank chief economist, as I just read you in the headline, says the federal government is doing almost nothing to fight inflation and help the Bank of Canada. Also advises the federal government to cut back on spending. I did invite the uh, chief economist of Scotiabank to be on this program this weekend and speak to that. They declined. The stock market's uh, plunge, we know that. So we're going to talk about all of this. Inflation, interest rates, food. Energy costs are going up, and uh, that small matter of some Canadians, one in four, fearful they may lose their homes if interest rates continue to climb. So this is all 
important stuff. And I'm going to be going to the phones and hear your thoughts on maybe on what you're doing to try to protect yourself as much as you can. I'll tell you something of what I've done, and then we'll take some phone calls. But let's first talk with uh, Professor Moshe Lander. He's uh, from Concordia University in Montreal, teaches international trade, money, and banking, and he's an expert on inflation, recession, and unemployment. So, Professor Lander, that would make you a popular man right now. I guess it makes me a popular man, but it doesn't necessarily make me popular in what I have to say. No, I, I'll make the distinction between the two. Sure. But let's talk about what the reality is. Inflation in May reached 7.7% increase. That's an increase over May of 21. The fastest it's done that since 1983, according to StatsCan. Gasoline jumped 12% in one month and 48% when compared to what the price of gas was in May of 2021. The food basket rose 9.7% over its cost in May of last year. So what does this say to you? Is, is, is the word recession flashing? Um, yes, but not necessarily because of all of the inflation stuff. Uh, I, I think that because inflation is now reaching levels where higher interest rates are inevitable, uh, those higher interest rates are probably bound to tip the Canadian economy, if not into a technical recession, certainly into something that feels like a recession. So what does, an, uh, there are people, and I, I've talked to a number of people over the last two days and asked them what their definition of recession is. And I've had some very interesting responses. And that makes me ask you the question, what exactly in layman's terminology is a recession? If we have a recession in this country, how's it going to affect the average Canadian? So the, the textbook definition of a recession is when you have two consecutive quarters of declining GDP. GDP is gross domestic product. That's the standard measure of how much an economy is producing. Uh, whether we actually have that or not is only known after the fact. GDP figures are usually released about six weeks after the end of a quarter. So if we were going to have, say, two consecutive quarters of declining GDP, we wouldn't know about it for essentially seven and a half months, right? Six weeks after the, the end of the second quarter. So, you know, it's one of those things that we'll only know it once we're in it. Um, that said, we can certainly recognize now what it might feel like to have an economic slowdown. And as interest rate increases occur with greater frequency and with greater intensity, the fact is that consumers are going to be confronted with uh, steady disposable income, uh, but more of that money is going to be used to pay interest on accumulated debts that we've run up, mortgages, lines of credit, car loans, student loans, if they're still floating around out there, uh, that means then there's going to be less money to spend on other things. That That's what's going to give us the, the microeconomic feeling of a recession. Okay, so our monthly bills just get larger, effectively. Yeah, uh, you said it, you know, grocery bills, uh, you know, jumping almost 10%, uh, gasoline prices 50% higher than a year ago. Uh, the one thing you didn't mention was uh, escalating rents in many, many Canadian cities. Uh, those three things together are probably the vast majority of our disposable income, whatever income status we have. Uh, and so when we're paying more for all of those things, uh, there's just less money to go to the local bar or uh, less money to go to the movie theaters, less money to go on vacation, less money for everything else, basically. Less money to go to the grocery store. 
Yeah. And you know what? It's one of those things where, you know, coupon clipping is back uh, de rigueur, I guess, that, uh, you know, you have to make sure that you're looking for every possible deal that's out there because it's just it's difficult to make ends meet now for almost everybody because we're we're not getting 7.7% raises. Nobody in the last six months would have foreseen that that's the type of uh, wage increase to ask for. And so in real terms, in terms of purchasing power, our, our money isn't stretching as far. And so it, it is making us make the, the complicated decisions of what's important and what, what can wait. I can't wait for Mr. Trudeau to tell everybody to go and clip coupons. That will be good election strategy. So the Scotiabank chief economist said the federal government is doing almost nothing to fight inflation and assist the Bank of Canada. He also suggested, um, the Scotiabank chief economist suggested to the feds they cut back on their spending. Would that be your advice? Um, I'm not a politician. So, yep, that would be my advice as an economist. But, uh, you know, when I'm sitting here in front of an open mic, I also don't have to face a voter, right? I can only imagine uh, what the blowback would be if the prime minister were to uh, hold a press conference, say, I know that many Canadians are struggling with the effects of high inflation right now. So the Canadian government has come up with a brilliant solution. We're going to spend less. Uh, you're going to get less money from us now. And, and we feel that that's the appropriate solution. It's the solution that will get you through uh, a macroeconomics exam in university because it's the correct thing to do. It's just, it's not going to win your votes. And so I, I don't imagine that you would hear them say that. Yeah, I, I think many Canadians would probably be agreeable if the government said, we're just not going to spend more. We will hold the spending line. And maybe that's what the chief economist at Scotiabank had in mind. I invited, invited them on the show, but they didn't. They said no. Um, the Bank of Canada target is 2% inflation. It's been above that for 15 months. Does the Bank of Canada bear any responsibility for the situation we find ourselves in for underestimating the reality as far as inflation is concerned? Uh, I'll, I'll give you a political answer here now. I'll, I'll say yes and no. Um, yes, they do. They they have a responsibility to keep inflation between one and three percent and and increasing interest rates is a very powerful lever uh, because there's no upper bound to how far you can increase interest rates right i, I don't know that we're going to return to uh 1983 uh, by the way the answer to your question is that it was prime minister trudeau in 1983 but um I, thank you I, I i don't know that we're gonna go back to that type of double digit interest rates um you know 25 percent mortgages and things like that but but they could increase it un until inflation comes down because it destroys consumer spending and it does tip the economy into a recession uh, they don't bear responsibility, though, because we've had two years of an unprecedented uh, virus that spread around the world, created wave after wave of lockdowns that were out of sync with the major parts of the global economy. And I, I think that the Bank of Canada took the approach of you don't kill a patient when it's dying on its own. Uh, you do everything you can to save the patient and then you worry about the cleanup after. So I, I think they maybe look the other way on uh, maybe some of the inflationary pressures merely to allow the Canadian economy to survive uh, some sort of terminal uh, issue if they had gone about increasing interest rates at the first sign of inflation. But you know now they have to clean up that mess that they allowed to, to get out of, out of hand. Any questions being asked about food and prices and where we are? And we always appreciate the opportunity to speak to Professor Sylvain Charlebois, the director of the Agri-Foods Analytics 
Laboratory and professor at Dalhousie University. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Food Professor. Sylvan, thank you very much for coming on the program. I've just heard people say that, yeah, of course, they don't fill up at the grocery store the way they used to because they just can't afford it. So what are the key issues right now this week? It seems to change, at least it does from what I'm reading and seeing. What are the key issues that Canadians need to focus on, A, as far as food security is concerned, and B, what cost is concerned? Well, it, it was a busy week this week, uh, Roy. Uh, we heard from Statistics Canada. Uh, we got the main numbers, and, and they weren't pretty. Uh, so the food inflation rate uh, in May was at 9.7%, uh, same as in April, but we're expecting June to be uh, to be higher. Uh, so sections in the grocery store where things are really getting tricky for consumers, produce, bakery, uh, frozen foods. But uh, the good news is uh, we learned this week that meat prices are starting to drop. So if you're a meat lover out there, uh, I would revisit the meat counter. It seems as though there are specials. Specials are back just in time for, for July 1st. But the, the other thing that happened this week uh, was uh, the United Nations, again, uh, alerting the world that uh, we're on the verge of a global food security crisis, and uh, and the UN, of course, is encouraging nations to uh, to focus on trade. Uh, it nations need to continue to trade and not hoard food, and and unfortunately, this is something that we're seeing more and more because the governments are getting nervous. So they're hoarding food for their own populations. Well, yeah, absolutely. So it would happen. Uh, it happened this week uh, uh, with the UN, and unfortunately, uh, a lot of people, a lot of countries, are actually uh, getting nervous. They're they're seeing uh, commodity prices go up. Uh, there's there's some scarcity there with uh, the current production cycle, including Ukraine. Uh, the Ukraine actually produces enough food to feed 400 million people. We all know there's going to be a deficit this year as a result of the conflict. So, so countries are, are and traders are scrambling. And unfortunately, in Canada, and I'm not saying anything that you haven't commented on, the current government in Ottawa doesn't seem to be particularly enamored with the agri-sector in, in this country, which is massive and can feed not only Canada, and Canadians, I think, but others as well. Absolutely, I, I am scratching my head, Roy, because a lot of a lot of times we we ask Ottawa to do something. They are doing things uh, that are actually hurting consumers, not helping. Starting with uh, obviously uh, taxes, uh, there are no there's no relief in sight. Whereas in the U.S., uh, parts of Europe, including Germany. Uh, we're seeing governments uh, reducing the tax burden on, on consumers to help households, essentially, uh, cope with inflation. Uh, we're talking about slapping uh, a fat label on ground meat, and we talked about this last week. Uh, the result of, of that policy would likely to make meat products more expensive in, uh, in months to come. Uh, and also, there's, there's one really dormant issue uh, going on right now that few people are talking about, but it's really affecting our uh, agri-food supply chain across uh, across North America. Is 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 this 
is are these restrictions at the border for truckers. And I know a lot of people have an opinion on truckers right now. I, I, I get it, but there are many independent truckers that could actually help, uh, could contribute to our economy. And right now they can because they're not vaccinated. Uh, I honestly believe that this may have something to do with the fact that transportation costs are much, much higher now. And at the end of the day, who pays for higher transportation costs? Consumers. It's putting a lot of pressure on food prices. A lot of people are pointing fingers at grocers right now with higher earnings and things like that. But the cost to sell food at retail has increased also. Um, if, there, if there's greed inflation uh, in the industry, I'm not sure it's in retail, but I do believe something is going on with transportation. And, and this, this, uh, these restrictions at the border, I believe, aren't helping at all. No, I mean, you, you tweeted about it. I read it earlier today. Unvaccinated Canadians are able to travel freely, but unvaccinated truckers may still not deliver or pick up food and cross the border. I saw one person reply that this rule also applies to American truckers, but you very clearly stated their situation is different to ours. It, absolutely. Stakes are very different. First of all, so I, I lived in, in Florida for five months this winter working uh, with colleagues there studying supply chains in the United States. Uh, truckers in the United States have options. I mean, they can go to Mexico. Uh, it's a huge market, over 340 million people. Uh, they have options. Stakes are very different. In Canada, we're reliant on that border much more so than Americans. Uh, we're, we're really an afterthought for Americans uh, when it comes to servicing uh, the, the Canadian market. And that's why I think it's, it's important for Ottawa to, to think twice about restrictions at the border affecting the flow of agri-food commodities and livestock as well. Because right now, I actually do think it's making things complicated. And, and if, 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 if this is about risks, fine. But Nanos uh, reminded us this week that, uh, that for a few Canadians, uh, the pandemic is the number one priority. I think it's like 3 or 4% now. Uh, a lot of people are thinking about inflation, uh, the job market, and, and other issues. And so, so that, if fear was the focus for Ottawa, well, I don't think it's there anymore. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 